Hello, welcome to my podcast for Child Development 251. I'm Jordan Green, and today I have Mr. Brandon Tomlin, who is an associate clinical social worker and mental health clinician for Contra Costa County. Today, we'll be discussing the topic death, loss, and bereavement and its effect on children. Thank you, Mr. Tomlin, for joining me today. Thank you for having me here. Of course. Mr. Tomlin, how long have you been working as a clinical therapist and working with children? Uh, let's see. Uh, I went to the University of Hawaii for my mm-hmm. master's in social work. Um, yeah, from 2012 to 2014. Okay. Uh, and then after that, I immediately started working as a clinician for um, Lincoln Child Center. And it's now called Lincoln Families, which is a nonprofit in Alameda County. Uh, and I specifically worked as a wraparound uh, therapist. So um, I would work with foster youth or adopted youth or youth who are reunifying with their families. Um, around topics like juvenile justice, if they were caught in the juvenile hall or or juvenile justice setting, or really mainly around placement stability and making sure that if there were communication problems or things like that in the home, that we could all sit down at the table together, the parent had an advocate, I was there and the youth would have an advocate as well. So that's you were the outlet for everybody. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I would coordinate the meetings on a monthly basis and then do any clinical work that needed to be done as far as around specific topics like um, if there was a loss that the child was still processing or just, you know, being in a foster care environment or being in an adoptive environment, there is some loss that goes along with that of just trying to figure out like is, you know, I'm coming into this family, is this really my family? I also have my biological family. Is there a loss attached with that? Of like feeling like I have to give up my family to be a part of this family. And like how well is everyone involved navigating that process? Exactly, and still trying to find yourself. Exactly, yes, and trying to grow up, (laughs) which is hard enough as it is. Exactly, okay. Yeah. So is it likely that you have worked with a child that has experienced death of a loved one or lost something that meant a lot to them, such as a pet or a friendship? Could you share, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, on the heavy side of things, I definitely worked with teenagers and kids that um, whose parents had either died or were so far removed from their life and were, they were never going to have that chance to reunify, at least not until, as an adult, they would go and seek that parent out. So... I think that form of loss um, was a pretty consistent thing that I would come up against. Um, And I mean, in my own life, my uh, on Christmas Day this past year, um, our cat got run over by a car and both of our I have a five year old and a three year old. And so we had to figure out how to talk about that yeah, and sorry, what yeah. we were going to yeah. do. Thank you. It's, it's all right. No, I know um, it's an attachment thing, especially with animals. It's different. I didn't understand it, but now having a dog, like, and seeing the, you know, dog grow up, it's like, it's really, it's yes, there. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and as a kid, any sort of loss, I think, um, is a little bit more abstract. You don't quite understand because, uh, our, cognitive development isn't quite as sophisticated we we don't understand what it really means for something to be gone forever right Right. like we have such a limited experience as as a child um there's only so much of the world that you know uh and so each new thing that happens uh whether a positive or a negative is kind of okay now i've got to figure out how i'm going to navigate this also so we take our cues from the adults around us as kids that's true and feed off of it Mm -hmm. yeah
That's true. Yeah. I know as adults, we may respond and show emotions of sadness, anger, and depression after hearing of a loss and during the bereavement process. According to the Kubler-Ross, according to Kubler-Ross, anger and depression is part of the five stages of grief. When it comes to children, a child, what are some ways to internalize and externalize their emotions after a loss or during the bereavement process? Yeah, I mean, I think similar to adults, you know, um, even just individually, different children take things harder or are able to process it easier. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, there's always a lot of questions. There's always a lot of, uh, well, why or what did this happen? What does this actually mean? I think that that's a pretty healthy way to respond to it. Some of um, internally, I think. It, it still comes down to how, how old the child is, how well they understand what those internal emotional states are. The difference between sadness and anger is hard to pick apart when you're a kid. It's all just, I feel bad. I don't feel happy. I don't feel positive. Um, so that can make it complicated to try and help them find the words even to describe what that feeling is. Uh, or, you know, if they're not even at that point, then just saying, how does it feel in your body? Physically, our body responds to negative and positive emotions. And, uh, you know, you can feel uh, pain in your chest or you can feel your heart beating faster or slower. Right. Or um, you can just feel angry or upset and like tense. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are ways to help kids kind of key into how that physical uh, manifestation of that uh, of that emotion can also be an indicator um, right. of what's going on but uh, I think that it, it's very real for kids as well it's just harder for them to communicate it verbally mm -hmm. because that that building of insight of understanding what that physical sensation is mm -hmm. uh, and connecting it to the vocabulary to describe the emotion is still in process. But I can still say as a young adult, I'm 23 and I still have a hard time trying to, you know, trying to see or level out how I feel mentally and what I want to say. Should I walk away? Absolutely. Should I express it? You know? Yes. So. And, and I think that that's very real in that. Uh, even as adults, we struggle a lot of times, especially with a really intense uh, situation like a loss or like figuring out how to grieve um, the ending of something, then uh, it makes us work really hard to figure out how we're going to do that. Um, and hence, you see a lot of people making you know negative choices about coping either through the use of substances or you know, uh, avoiding it or, you know, expressing it out of anger instead of really identifying that that root is really this sadness or this loss that's causing that. And so, you know, as adults, we struggle with that. As kids, you know, they don't even have necessarily the tools developed yet in order exactly. to process it or handle it. So, um, you know, like I said before, I think they take their cues from the adults around them. So if they see the adults around them, being open and willing to talk about these things or, you know, asking questions and saying, hey, you know, I see you, you don't seem as energetic as you usually are, you know, mm -hmm. kind of asking some of those exploratory questions, then they know it's okay to talk about. They know yeah. it's okay to check in and, and say, like, I don't feel good or I, you know, in whatever way they know how to express it, which sometimes is just throwing something across the room yeah. or, you know, being extra whiny or, um, you know, being clingy, right? Having that attachment, yeah. feeling like I don't want to lose you also. The same space. Yeah, yeah. The, those are all normal reactions to it. It's just about how you put that into context for a child so that they can 
they can make those connections and understand, oh, okay, this is how my body responds when something that makes me sad has happened. And, you know, and, you know, with my daughter, she still to this day will just come up and our, our cat's name was Wolfgang. I should say, <laughs> yeah, Wolfgang died. That was sad. And, and now I, I miss Wolfgang. We don't get to see him anymore. And it's just, yes, that's true. That's, that's yeah. how it is. And it is sad, but you know, we, we still have all the memories of him. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's kind of helping them to learn what, uh, some healthy ways to cope are. That's good. I like yeah. that. I like that. Um, what are some other symptoms a child may display during that time? Um, I mean, it, it can go the whole range the same as uh, adults. I think uh, a lot of times it's not quite as long lived for kids, but it depends. You know, if the loss of a parent is, is huge uh, and whether that is them again, like their parent actually dying or them being removed from their parents' care or, you know, that parent leaving, you know, a divorce and, and a parent um, leaving out of the area and no longer being involved in that child's life. Right. All of those, I can't say that one is stronger than the other, but uh, all of them can kind of result in uh, a, a lot of different, a kind of a full range of symptoms you would see with grief. So. Uh, I think anger and outbursts tend to be a pretty classic response for a lot of kids who don't necessarily have uh, the emotional tools built yet. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for older children who have some of those tools, and yeah, it may be more isolating. You look at 12 and 13 year olds who are, um, have a huge influx of hormones coming into their system anyway, and then you throw in a a really intense loss or uh, trauma and that can make it even that much more complicated to try and pick apart like, is this emotion really, you know, this strong or is this just a reaction to my body changing as well and my biology being different? So it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. lot. Um, I don't think we really think about it that deep. No. And and I didn't until definitely not. Mr. Tomlin, you mentioned earlier that you work with children in a school setting. How does bereavement impact a child's cognitive, social, and um, academic functioning? Well, I mean, it, it generally it torpedoes it, right? Mm-hmm. You you have something in a child's life that is much bigger than school, right? It's much bigger than the friendships they're forming. Then, for the most part, and you know, it, it's it's something that really n- needs all of their attention in order to try and process it. The same as us, right? We can take days off, mm-hmm. you know, and pretty much any job you have is gonna say, hey, like, you don't even have to use your sick time. There's designated time right. that, uh, you know, three to seven to days generally that they automatically give you if there's a loss or a big, mm-hmm. you know, really challenging situation. And as kids, uh, you know, I think that's healthy too. Like, give them a break from right. school for a hot second. You know, yeah. give at least give them a few days to process, and then they may. A lot of times, kids want the distraction just like we do. Yeah. So to keep some them busy of, and exactly. Mind off things. Some of it is is getting them back into that routine and getting that. You know, trying to help them recognize. Okay, this is a really powerful thing that's happened, but my life is continuing to move forward. Right. Right? I have people around me who are going to support me in getting back into my routine and getting back into that. Yeah. Um, I think that making sure that 
trusted staff people at the school know what is going on mm-hmm. uh, and being honest with the kid and saying, hey, I'm going to go tell these adults, right. right? Like I'm going to let them know not to talk to anyone else about it. Mm-hmm. But as far as any of the other kids, I'm going to leave that to you whether or not you want to talk with them about yeah. it, right? Like mm-hmm. give them some agency, give them some control over who is going to know, mm-hmm. especially in their peer group. But some of the, you know, adults that they trust that work at the school need to know because yeah. they're going to need to know to notice different signs and symptoms like them not wanting to play with their friends the way they would or being a little extra irritable or being checked out and you know uh, having difficulty focusing on the material that's being presented in class i think all of those are really i mean normal reactions to a really intense situation your brain continues to go back to that person or that event or those things that um it's still trying to make sense of and you know that isn't dependent on you can't just turn that off especially as a child and as adults we struggle to turn that off too um so us going to work you know i I, if i'm at work and i notice like oh man i'm still not really good on this then i'm gonna leave because i'm not doing myself any good and i'm not doing anybody i work with any good either right so it's making sure a kid knows hey you know, if, if the parent, if the adults around you are noticing that you're not doing great, like mm-hmm. I've told them to let me know mm-hmm. and we'll, I'll, I'll come and check in with you. We'll see where things are at. Mm-hmm. And if it's time to go, then it's time to go. Right. Like it's okay we, to step back. Yeah, it's okay. And we're going to say, you know, I'll tell them to, to get work packets together and send them back with us. You know, yeah. there's always ways to address the immediate need mm-hmm. and still have a plan for how to get back into a routine and meet all of those continuing things like school's going to be there no matter what right, <laughs> right? like but your mental if, has to be there yeah also. exactly if right. you need even two weeks off that's not the end of the world you know it's much more important to deal with that before it starts to develop bad habits or develop yeah. negative coping strategies mm-hmm. um uh, because those can last for much, much longer. I agree. All right. Um, some children are inquisitive and ask questions like, why or how come they died? Did they go to heaven? How can parents or caregivers or teachers respond when these questions come up? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I think <laughs> it's, it depends on the the adults and what their belief system is and what they want to pass along to their kids. Mm -hmm. So if you believe in heaven and hell and that is, you know, and whether you go to church or not, if that's your belief system about how things happen after someone dies is that uh, there is this afterlife, then it's explaining it in those terms to your child. Uh, But it's also asking, well, what do you think happened? Mm -hmm. You know, like where, what do you think happens when we die? It's a good chance to to ask them questions and help them start asking those questions themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times I'll, uh, I mean, in my family, we're pretty much atheist. <laughs> so it's just a matter of, well, where does that energy go? Right. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there was energy that was li- keeping your body alive and all the cells and things in there. And, you know, when something dies, that energy goes somewhere else. So it goes back into the earth or it goes into the plants or, you know, it comes back in a different form. But there's always a way that you can remember, you know, that energy is going to continue to live, to push forward. Um, So that's one way. I think uh, 
for teachers and caregivers, you want to check in with the parents about what their belief system is, right? Like, so if I was, uh, as a clinician coming in and, and doing wraparound services, mm -hmm. I would check in with the parents and see, you know, well, what's reinforced in this house, mm -hmm. right? What, how should I frame this for this kid? Right. And it, it's not about me as the provider. Mm -hmm. So what I believe in really takes a backseat in those moments. And it's really saying, okay, whatever the, you know, whatever is going to be continuing in this household and perpetuated and agreed upon in this household is what I'm going to support. Right. right. Um, and anyone who is a professional should do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you kind of check in your personal biases and your personal opinions on things. Uh, you check that out the door. You have to. Yeah. yeah as a respect thing. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, it's not my house. It's yeah. not my family. I'm just I've seen before where a parent sugarcoated and made up a story to their child about the death because they were trying to protect her child from feeling hurt and pain. Do you think a child may respond negatively or his or her thinking may be distorted surrounding death due to misguided, dishonest information by the parent, teacher, or caregiver? Absolutely. Uh, again, um, I can't kind of reinforce this enough, but kids automatically look to the parents around uh, them or the adults around them to take their cues, right? right? So, um, you know, anytime it, it may be something that they, that the kid doesn't even, or doesn't even present for this child until later in life, but, you know, ha not having real conversations about death teaches them that that's not an okay subject to talk about, right? Or not having, uh, really open and honest communication about loss and about sadness and about heavy, hard emotions means that they're less likely to come to you of their own volition, like on their own terms, mm -hmm. when something really bad happens that they need to talk about. Yeah. Uh, or if you consistently minimize that, right, it's, it, it creates some dissonance, some cognitive dissonance in how they respond. Like their body is feeling really negative about a situation, but you're telling them, no, it's fine, everything's okay. Mm -hmm. So their message that they get from the adult is, oh, this is something that's wrong with me. Everybody right. else is okay with this, but mm -hmm. I have a problem with this, so I, I guess there's something wrong with how I'm responding to it. Right. As opposed to if you know someone, uh, a, a child comes with really heavy subject matter and you say, oh, this is really heavy, I understand why this is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wish I had a, a really simple, easy answer for you, but I don't. But let's find some answers together, right? right? Then that still leaves it open. You're not saying it, it, it's good or it's bad. It just is what it is. Yeah, we're going to figure it out together. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and like um, you don't ever negate someone's experience because uh, it does. It, it causes them to question, you know, it uh, causes a child to question their own self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. Am I even being accurate? And, and do I know how to feel the right way in response to things? Yeah, it's yeah. like there's never a wrong way to feel about something. It's just how do you respond to that feeling? How do you help a child develop the skills necessary to, um, to handle that, to process it? And if they can't process it alone, to come and seek out help to process it. Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay. Um, Mr. Tomlin, how common is it for teachers, parents, and or caregivers to reach out for help and support from a clinician, mental health professional like yourself? Pretty common. I mean, uh, I think it's becoming less and less of a, 
of an issue where people feel a social stigma around reaching out for support, mm-hmm. it's definitely still prevalent. And um, like, I think it depends on the setting. It depends on the, the cultural environment. And it depends on, um, you know, the unique factors of each family of how willing they are or, or each kind of teacher or provider, how willing they are to reach out. But across the board, I would say it's more normalized mm-hmm. to reach out for that support. Again, I mean, there's organizations like Our House, uh, which are specifically to, um, focused on grief and loss and helping people deal with that. Yeah. That's, you know, uh, children all the way up through adulthood. That's good. Um, there's, you know, NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, which also uh, tends to provide a lot of support groups and, and try and put out as much information as they can, not only to normalize, but just also to provide enough resources for yeah. people to have somewhere to turn. Yeah, that's good. Because yeah. everybody can't afford it. Correct. And, and I think that, you know, it's uh, a lot of times, if nothing else, I always recommend, look, like at least talk to your primary care doctor or the child's pediatrician, because mm-hmm. they're going to have some resources connected to them, or they're going to know at least what some first steps for, for different areas to turn are. Yeah. You know, and then at schools, pretty much all schools have some sort of counselor mm-hmm. or, or therapist that works with them as well. You know, and, and that's, almost always free of charge because it's connected through the public school system. Um, That being said, I can understand uh, a parent or guardian being hesitant to want to reach out to that formalized, uh, you know, uh, organization of of the public school. They don't want their kid to feel stigmatized at school. So they don't want to deal with it at the school. So, um, you know, at that point, again, most counties have uh, a resource line like that you can call on the phone. And Contra Costa right. County, yeah, it's two one one. And from there, you know, you, you have a chance to seek out both medical but also behavioral health services. Okay. And uh, almost all of them are either medica accept medical or you know have sliding scale or free or, or low costs okay. so it's a matter of just knowing what's out there and knowing at least the starting point for yeah. reaching out for those resources mm-hmm. um and then uh, as a professional just helping bridge that gap and make that connection for people right. uh, so that they have access to what they need that's good that's good all right um in the book goodbye mousy the author harris and omara talk about the stages of grief Model at talk about the stages of the grief model after a little boy pet mouse dies. How often do you explore this process when providing counseling to a child? Um, uh, I don't know how often I would say. I, I think it's it's something that should hopefully develop at some point organically within like a therapeutic alliance with a kid. Yeah. You know, you you meet with them about whatever's going on you know if they have a mental health diagnosis then you have a treatment plan and you're working on goals towards uh, uh, helping them improve in the skills to to meet those needs or to to complete those goals Mm -hmm. now if uh, if the purpose of meeting is around grief then yeah it's probably going to be a much uh, much more common theme brought up in each session that you're meeting with the kid Uh, if that's not the primary focus of that therapy or that therapeutic treatment in that moment, mm-hmm. then it's not necessarily something I would bring up. Uh, but 
if I hear from the parent or another person involved with this kid's care that something came up for them, Mm -hmm. or if they bring it up, then it's okay. This is the right time to address it. They're asking about it. So this is when we need to attend to it. That makes sense. Okay. What other interventions, types of therapy do you use to help a child process their emotions with coping with the death or loss? I mean, play therapy is going to be the go-to all the time, right? Like there's, different forms of play therapy. You can have them, you know, interact with dolls and just see how they play. You can, um, I I think a a really powerful one can just be sand trays or trays with, um, like rock gardens and things so that they can kind of just manipulate things. Mm -hmm. Anything that gets them physically engaged in an activity Mm -hmm. or, um, sometimes for a little bit of older children, either painting or drawing, so that they have a, a means to process uh, and to ex- kind of um, explore what it is that's going on, but also be kind of the author of how they're how it's playing out right. in their own words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So if they're pre-reading or pre-writing, mm-hmm. then it's what are some other ways that the, that you can provide to a kid where they can still express what's going on inside. Right. Imagination is huge. Mm-hmm. So giving them the tools to, uh, to process that in their imaginary world helps. Uh, and it helps as a provider to be able to see what's going on. Yeah. So. Okay. Awesome. Sometimes we might observe a child playing after they have been told about a death or a loss. Is it safe to assume that a child is okay and not grieving or in bereavement? Um, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say they're not dealing with it in that moment, right? Like, yeah. uh, just like all of us, if we're constantly stuck in that bereavement and that grief, then it's really exhausting. It's draining. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's very draining. And we all need a little bit of a break from mm-hmm. those things. So... Seeing a kid go and play normally is hopefully a really healthy response and it is a good thing, but it's not, you can't write it off. You can't check out at that point and say, oh good, everything's fine now. I don't have to worry about it anymore. But should you be like extra concerned then since they're not really like surrounded by or is that like more of a gentle approach? It's like, okay, they're okay. So maybe I can approach it a little differently or. Well, um, that I, I think it comes down to you know, also just knowing what is this child's baseline like, Mm -hmm. right? Like, is this a kid who normally is really outgoing and has now changed to someone who just wants to go and play by themselves all Uh, the time, right? Or is this a kid who uh, has always been kind of by themselves and enjoyed Mm -hmm. having that alone time anyway? Um, And they're doing the same activities they would have done normally before this happened? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, then... it's a kind of a wait and see situation. Like if it becomes a pattern of them always just going, focusing only on playing and doing those things or really avoiding talking about this person that they've lost or about this loss that's happened, then yes, then it's time to say, okay, Hey, we do need to just get on the same page about this. So I know where you're at. Right. But it doesn't have to turn into, um, you know, anything more than that. I read in research that 70 to 80% of students will experience a loss, loss, death of a loved one, friend or pet, friend or pet. So schools have started offering trainings to, to staff so they can help support bereaved children. Do you think these trainings should include cultural competence since some cultures have different traditions, beliefs in traditions and beliefs surrounding death? I know we kind of t- uh, tapped in that a little bit yeah. earlier. 
But I, I do think that, uh, again, any, really any training around providing support to others should have a, a piece around competency and, and uh, cultural, just cultural awareness more than yeah. anything, right? So um, just understanding that there are many different ways to process things and, there, and yeah, many no different, way. right, and, and you can't tell someone to change how they're bereaving or grieving something right. and expect that to be, that you're going to get a healthy response from them around that. So, so do you think it's different trying to hmm, counsel like somebody from a different culture? It is. I mean, again, I, so I'm a relatively young white man in America. Yeah. And uh, so I come from a position of privilege and even without any of that being said, as a clinician or as a therapist, you have the power going into a setting where you're meeting with someone who's coming to you for support, right? right. So uh, there is a power differential there and it's putting it out on the table and making sure that, that, is, that everyone is aware of that and that your clients are aware that you know <laughs> that there's a power differential there also. Mm -hmm. You know, so setting that up and then again, being as humble as you can and coming from a place of humility and saying, look, I'm here to learn about how y'all do your family, how y'all handle things. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, and then I may have some suggestions on some other ways that can help improve, um, y'all's ability just to support each other. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, this is, someone else's family, someone else's culture. Right. I, I'm just a visitor coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as respectful as I can in saying, hey, you know, I'm going to take your lead. And if there's a point in time where you need me to take lead, just let me know. Yeah. And I'll, I'll step in and, and say, or, you know, give some advice or some suggestions. But otherwise, like, you know, this is your game. I'm just here. Yeah, to mediate. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Thinking about children and loss, what other trainings do you think will be helpful to staff? Um, I, again, I mean, a huge part of it is just um, going in uh, with an understanding that you may know particular strategies or skills mm -hmm. that you can help um, provide to someone or give them options for how to grieve. Mm -hmm. But that that expertise doesn't mean you need to go in and tell people how to grieve, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's exactly. it's that difference of, I have other options I can provide for you. Mm -hmm. So if you're struggling to figure out how to process this, here, let me give you some other suggestions on ways that work for some other people, right? right? right. But I'm not coming in and telling you, this is healthy, this is not healthy, mm -hmm. this is what you need to do, because yeah. there's no one size fits all. And right. especially when it comes for grieving, it's more that, every individual is going to have a unique way that they process things and um, trying to fit them into a box, trying to fit a, them into a structure is never going to be as successful as providing the structure and allowing them to figure out how they want to fit Things into it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, Mr. Tomlin, do you have anything else you would like to say that can possibly help our listeners today? Um, I think the, the main thing is uh, if, you're going to do your own research on where there are um, supports and, and services and resources available. Go through trusted 
you know, systems. So right. there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet mm -hmm. and it's not all necessarily good advice. Um, you know, there's a lot of pseudo-psychology and pseudoscience stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, go straight to the APA, the uh, American Association, or American Psychological Association, or okay. go to the NASW, the National Association of Social Workers. Mm -hmm. I go to the trusted federal or, you know, uh, countrywide organizations that help provide guidance and ethics and, um, and resources to these different social work and, um, and helping professions. Mm -hmm. And from there, you should have more trusted other uh, resources you can pull from. Awesome. Um, I want to thank you for listening. <clears throat> Excuse me. And thank you, Mr. Brandon Tomlin, for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. It was awesome. a pleasure. Likewise. All right, let me stop it.